Rich Ciade, Paul Ford. It's Track Changes, the official podcast of the Postlight Agency. Rich, tell me what Postlight does. I love that we say official because there are all those unofficial bootleg podcasts, bootleg podcasts. that claim to be for Postlight. Don't but... interrupt me with your with your. All right. Yeah. Postlight just... is a digital studio that designs and builds amazing apps and platforms check us out on the global information superhighway at postlight.com yes and we are very very lucky today fortunate because we have a man in the studio who has three names those are the best man go aaron straup cope not only that but they're like sharp names well you get you get you get in there with the aaron aaron hi how are you hello okay let me tell you about your name you get in there with the Aaron. You're like, oh, okay, I've been here before. And then strop, which actually sounds like something. you sharpen a razor on a yeah. strop. You know, you strop a razor. Is that right? I don't actually know what the etymology of the name is. Somebody's going to tell us at contact at postlight.com. And then cope, which is just like, you better, you better get ready. You better actually prepare yourself because you're going to need to cope with this individual. Aaron Strop Cope. Hi, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. You're hard to explain. You're hard to explain because you've been around for a while and you do a lot of different stuff. Let me see if I can tell you what you are and then you can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. Jump in there anytime. Aaron. Yeah, you feel free. I, I do this a lot. I would say your baseline is that you are a technologist, you're a programmer, and you think and you work with computers and have worked with them from your upbringing in Canada and your life in Vancouver. You, you, you were, what was your first computer? Uh, Timex Sinclair. Oh, like a 1000 with the membrane keyboard? I think so, yeah. My father tried to get me into computers very young, like around the time that they were out, and it didn't stick. No, those were terrible, terrible computers. If anyone ever seen, they actually had the programming language built into the keyboard, and so you'd like print, you had to like jam this membrane with your little tiny boy thumb or those girl weird, thumb. weird non-standard keys at the top. It also had 2K, keys. 2K of memory, which represents about 1 48,000th of a second of this broadcast. I'm a fan of constraints. That's, that was, that's not a constraint. No. That's, that's like one page. Oh, man. So... I think I first met you at an event like at the New York Times. They had like an open hack day for the first time ever. Yep. I met you there. I don't know if you started with this, but like one of your one of your jobs early days was as a little organization that was creating a game called Game Never Ending. Yeah, I arrived after GNE oh, and before Flickr, you know, I arrived in month 10 of Flickr. Okay, so Game Never Ending was a game that people played online in Flash, and then it pivoted suddenly. It was created by, what was the company? Ludacorp. Ludacorp. And it pivoted, and it became Flickr, and then you came along. Yeah. So what was Flickr like early days? How many people were there? I was employee nine or ten. Oh, my. I think. Very um, early. Yeah, it was small, heads down. Everybody worked super hard. It's a weird thing to explain to people because... The expression that I've always used is a terrible expression because it, it comes across as all the worst habits of the way people talk about technology now, which is the sort of macho, killing it, crushing it rhetoric, which is pretty tiresome. Boning it. Yeah. I've um, never heard. Kicking it. <laughs> throwing <laughs> up on it. I mean, the way that I described it was, and again, I just it's a terrible description, but it was that there was a culture of shame, which meant that you felt bad if you weren't working as hard as everyone else. Like... The people that I worked with, you were just sort of in awe of what they had accomplished. I mean, this this sounds amazing, and it sounds very productive. It also sounds like a terrifying cult. 
I, I suppose. <laughs> I think you're I, all run, you're all kind of working on the same thing, and you're trying to. You've seen everybody work hard, and and you you got to push up your side of the house, right? You're, so. you're fairly young at that point too, right? Like you're in your twenties, or no, I was in my thirties. You were in your thirties, yeah. So you st- you at this point in your life, I'm assuming, like occasionally want to like go to bed, see a movie. Yeah, and I I didn't. You didn't. You did, you I mean, it wasn't. You know, we had, everybody had lives, but we also had this thing that was growing faster than anyone quite knew what to do with. Oh, so that's um, fascinating, right? So I mean, we're talking about all the hard work, but if you're seeing something scale up, that is like a once in a lifetime experience. And it was also, I mean, the thing that I used to say to people was the great advantage that Flickr or now like any other photo sharing website has is that we dealt in photos. Right. right? Everybody loves photos. Everybody does stuff with photos. So. You know, at the end of the day, there would be all the technical challenges, and then, you know, some days there would be issues around moderation and just content. But mostly, we just had this enormous, beautiful monster at the end of every day, and you would, you would stop and think, "Well, I've seen all the photos," and then you'd turn around and be like, "Oh, look at this!" There, and it was there, amazing. There I mean, was always was, another picture to see, right? Yeah, I mean, the first experience I had of that was, you know, I worked on this what we joked as Flickr with no ambition. I worked on a project called The Mirror Project with Heather Champ. Oh, I'm in The Mirror Project. I yeah. submitted a picture. Okay. And for you know, for people who don't know, The Mirror Project was, the byline was Adventures in Reflective Surfaces. Um, and it was pictures. It made everybody really angry too. Really? Yeah, and I remember people in my world just being like, oh, the narcissism project. Like the idea that people would take pictures of themselves and put them on the internet was seen as the basest narcissistic awfulness. Well, so I don't. I did it. I I was in there. I mean, the story that Heather tells is she used to go on vacation and she would have pictures of everybody else that she was with except herself. So she had no memories of her presence on that trip. So she started taking self-portraits in the bathroom mirror. And I said, the first leap of faith is that the next logical step is to take those pictures and put them online. That's a big leap of faith back then. And then the second leap of faith that you just have to accept is that random strangers will start sending you pictures of themselves in bathroom mirrors. But we were so naive, right? Because we didn't think they would just constantly send pictures of their penises, which is what they do now. Right. Well, we didn't let people just upload stuff. Everything went through an editorial filter. I mean, Heather did sure. pick and choose. I mean, and she later became sort of the moderator of moderators for Flickr. For Flickr. So you rode the tidal wave of both good and bad internet behavior. You were there in this culture as thousands and thousands of images are suddenly coming in and going in out into the world at once. I'm sure there's some horrible stuff coming in always, but good and bad is coming in always. And, but you're also seeing that at scale. Like, I mean, that, that was one of the first times people had probably seen people misbehaving visually at scale. Aaron, probably. what was your role specifically at Flickr? Um, like what, did, what corner of the world were you thinking about and working on? Engineering. So I was engineer number two okay. um, for, the, for the application. There were other engineers, but Cal Henderson, who was the architect of the site, did everything. Mm-hmm. And then I came along to relieve a lot of the burden. And so mm-hmm. I you did... You were touching. You weren't like focused on metadata or some corner of it. You were so early on that you're touching everything. Yeah. Okay. And so I did a lot of just grunt work and legwork to keep the site up and to give Cal time to work on other things. And then as the team grew and there was more space, I was working on all of the back end for the geotagging and then sort of side projects like machine tags at Flickr. You'd had a website for a long time, aaronland.net. 
there was always interesting stuff. It always felt very close to my world. You'd be like messing around with XML one day or just document stuff. And I was like, oh, I kind of get that guy. That's cool. That's impressive. And then you just started to deal with ever larger sets of data like, and get do stuff like geo early. This is like 2008 you were doing? Geotagging launched. Uh, it will be the 10-year anniversary on August 28th of this year. So, so Flickr did geo in 2006. I was doing geo when I was scraping the New York Times. So like Google Maps is out and like Flickr is out. Right. And then those were the games you know, changing. The game, but I mean that that was intense stuff, and it was it was big. And I remember you were doing things like I don't know, just sort of drawing maps of the world using Flickr's data, right? You were doing though that was called the shape files or the alpha shapes, right? So what we had was Yahoo had this enormous gazetteer that um, tell we, tell the listeners what a gazetteer is. A gazetteer is a big list of all the places on Earth with stable identifiers and pointers to other places that have a relationship with that place. Like what would a record be in a gazetteer? So New York City might be ID 12345. Okay. And if we imagine that it's a JSON file, then it's just structured data. So it will have a name, a stable ID, hopefully a geometry, so you can see the shape of New York. And then it will have pointers to New York City as part of the region of New York, which in turn has its own ID and its own JSON file. And then it's part of the so United States. It's not just like the shapes. It's not just that the names, but it's it's those things in relationship because a New York City is part of a state called New York, which is part of a country called the United States. Yeah. I mean, so part of the reason that we glommed on to gazetteers at Flickr was just purely practical reasons, which is in 2006, there was not globally available geographic data at okay. the scale we needed. Sure. So it was just a question of coverage. You couldn't just go out and get a bunch of pictures of the world like you can now with OpenStreetMap and things like that. Right. I mean, okay. it, it just didn't exist. Okay. People didn't have it. I mean, when we launched geotagging, the map that was done by Yahoo, it was pretty embarrassing for everybody. They fixed it quickly enough. But when we launched, we didn't have street-level data for London. Okay. So what people saw when they tried to go to geotag their photos was a giant gray blob. Well, oh, that's, boy. that's not unlike London sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But so if you fast forward to 2009, 2010, when Yahoo had decided to give all of the mapping services to Nokia or Navtech, what you discovered was Navtech didn't have street-level data in 2009, 2010 for Tokyo because they had never driven it because they weren't able to create a deal. So there was always this question of that sort of this toxic relationship of coverage and licensing and quality. And so because we wanted to be able to tell people where all their photos in you know, Kipps Bay or the Upper East Side were taken, we needed to just as a practical matter store a fixed number of IDs per photo. So you had to work backwards to a map of the world in order to get your job done. Kind of. Yeah, uh, that's a nice, nice sort of constraint. First, to create a map of the world. Second. Well, so one of the things we were able to do was, you know, as people geotagged their photos and as we were able to tell them where they were, the service that we had for asking where someone was would return bounding boxes. So it would return rectangles. And the problem is, is that if you have multiple overlapping rectangles for neighborhoods, for instance, the question then is, which one did you mean? Okay, so I live in Ditmas and I take a picture, but that could, like it kind of overlaps a little bit with Kensington and people's imagination and right. get them both back. And you have the responsibility as an application person to give me an answer. Yeah. To not to be like, we don't really know. Computers aren't allowed to say that. Yeah. We we don't want this ambiguous stuff back. The, the problem was that 
we had bounding boxes. And so if you take the state of California and you draw a box around it, what you end up with is a quarter of the possible results are just wrong uh, because they're in Utah or Nevada. And the other quarter are, for the purposes of photo sharing, impossible because they're in the water. Oh, so you're, you're talking literally a big rectangle around California. That's what right. you're dealing with because that the computer is good at that kind of math. That was all the data that that we were able to return out of the service. And so what we started to do was we thought, well, we have all of these geotagged photos. We have all of these photos with coordinates that have IDs associated with them. Maybe we can draw something better than a bounding box. Okay. Maybe we can start to draw the shape of them. And oh, so that because you know where people are. Country, we could do it well. City, we could do it most of the time. Neighborhoods, we had to turn off neighborhood display two weeks after Geotag launched because the best way to pick a fight with someone is to tell them they're in the wrong neighborhood. Um, okay. And so just as a, a function of priorities and time and all the other things we were doing, it took us about 18 months to finally add a feature to the photo page where you could be like, this is in Ditmas, not in Park Slope or wherever. Sure. And once we could do that, we had some sense that we weren't just going to provide an echo chamber by tracing the shape of where people said they were. How did the users react to all this geography? Uh, unless we told them they were in the wrong neighborhood, they loved it. I mean, what did they do with it? Like, what's that? What does that data do for them? Well, the short, truthful answer is I don't know because the Flickr audience contained multitudes. Sure. The slightly longer answer is in the first 24 hours, people geotagged a million photos. See, that's right. I just remember it became part of the product in like five seconds. Like it was just like one day Flickr got geo. Well, so the backstory is that Dan Cat, who was living in the UK at the time, set up a website called geobloggers.com. And what he said to people was, you need to add three tags to your photos. One of them was geo colon lat equals a latitude. The same thing for longitude. And then there was what I always referred to as an anchor tag, which was just geotagged. And what Dan said was, I will harvest the Flickr API every night for new photos tagged geotagged, pull out the latitude and longitude, and plot your photos on a map. And we saw that, and we thought we should hire this guy. So you have this culture where somebody's like, hey, you guys know there's all these places in here. Let's do something with it. And the culture of Flickr was like, yeah, great. Yeah. Which, I, I mean, to me, I always, I associate you with organizations because after you went to Flickr, that got bought by Yahoo, which is everyone, everyone knows is one of the great success stories of the last millennium. And you left Yahoo, which I still don't know why anyone would ever do that. <laughs> and you went to, I believe, Stamen Design. Yes. There's a thing that's interesting, which is you, you think really big thoughts and you think in a very abstract way, but it always translates back to you writing code that then ends up on GitHub or ends up somewhere like I or giving a talk or whatever, but you you're an unusual combination of very, very abstract thinking and very, very specific shipping. Hopefully. I mean, on, on no, good I'm, days, I'm giving you a compliment, but I mean, but, but it's also real. Like if I go look at GitHub associated with what's your GitHub handle uh, these days, it's, this is Aaron land, right? There's a lot of stuff there, right? And there has been, and it's, it's for years, like you've been given stuff into the comments. So you, you go to Stamen. Well, it's it, worth describing what Stamen is. Yeah, what is Stamen? Stamen is a data visualization studio. It's a design studio. Um, in San Francisco. Mostly. In San Francisco. Uh, that has been doing, I mean, in many ways, and this predates my arrival, Stamen sort of single-handedly created the notion of data visualization as a thing that people wanted. 
And yeah, if you're going to have a live stream of tweets visualized on the background of a giant screen at like a sporting event on national TV, that was a Stamen product for a while. Like that was, it would be like, whoa, that's really awesome and real and, and, and it would be by Stamen. Yeah. And, you know, Eric Rodenbeck, who's the founder, is always fond of saying data visualization is a medium that the volume of data would tell you something. And that was Stamen's great strength of being able to show you what was there. And to make it compelling, that it wasn't just a number crunching exercise, that there was quite a lot of fashion and spectacle and design in it. It was art. I mean, it was bordered on art. There was a definite care to the impactfulness of what was being produced, which was really cool. I mean, you could tell technically there was some cool stuff happening underneath the hood, but there was definitely a care to the aesthetic. Yeah. Mike Magursky, who was one of the other partners, he he did a slide in 2007 where he was, basically the argument was he was saying the design and math are no longer on parallel tracks. They are beginning to converge. Um, and that was the space that Stamen was able to occupy. And I noticed, I remember there, all of a sudden very pretty maps started to come out of Stamen and out of you. Not physically out of you, but out of the work that you used to do. You didn't. Well, we don't know that for sure. <laughs> no, I don't. I honestly don't think that Aaron ever produced a map physically. Um, so the geo bug had bitten you hard. Yeah. At that point. Like, I, I would say that if there is a theme, like place is a theme in your career. Sure. But then you kind of took a turn. You were like, I was like, oh, Aaron, Aaron's a map guy. And then you went and worked at the Cooper Hewitt Museum of Design. Yes. It's part of the Smithsonian. It's here in New York City. Yep. And you did something really weird, which is you put their whole collection on GitHub. That also predates my arrival, but yeah. What? Someone else did that? That was Seb. Oh, okay. Seb. Seb Chan was the director of the original director of digital and emerging media at the museum. He was hired by the then director, Bill Mogridge, to come in and as part of the renovation because the museum was closed for three years, to try and imagine in meaningful and practical terms what it means to have a museum that is genuinely part of the internet and vice versa. Watching you guys work over a while, because you did things like accession and iPad app and try to figure out how like to bring that into a design museum as code. As a design object, actually. Right, but it, you acquired the code as well. Right. Right, sorry, yeah, I, I should be clear, but it was... I learned something which uh, I don't think most other people apply, but people talk a lot about authentic engagement and connecting and, and what they're often thinking about is broadcast. And what really seems to work online is not this like, oh, we're going to have a good Twitter account and a good Facebook account, but we're going to engage with people kind of in the commons in a meaningful way. And even, I'm not a fan of Walmart, but Walmart Labs is a good participant in the open source world. And if you yeah. go and you look at their GitHub page, they have lots of stuff and they, they give stuff back and it's pretty well documented. And they're and it, it actually, it's like, I really have very few positive associations with the Walmart brand, but that's one. I'm just like, okay, well, there, there's a thing they're doing right that I respect. Like I have to take that into account when I think about... I, I like Walmart. Great. Good for you. Get out, get out of here. Just wanted to throw that <laughs> what in What do there. you like about Walmart? I think it's a it's it's you just go in there you spend like seventy dollars and your whole shopping cart's full. Sorry, I do like shopping in Walmart, but the company kind of sucks. Do they? Oh yeah, they're bad. They're bad. I mean, it's just oh this 
this could yeah, overwhelm let's the not see the podcast. It's just a lot of like... We'll come back to this it's one. It's a lot of like really <laughs> bad minimum wage or, or things where they were... At one point, they were buying insurance, life insurance on their employees without letting them know because they were just kind of playing them on. So when their people died, they'd get a payout. Okay. So about that museum you work at, Aaron? Yeah. Did, did work at. Formerly worked at. Oh, okay. You're not there anymore. No. Where are you today? I am doing maps again. At Mapzen, and what is Mapzen? Mapzen's an interesting project. Yeah, describe the mission. Uh, the way that I've said to people is Google's great sleight of hand, and it, there's no, it's not a pejorative. Google's earned it. Is to convince people that when it comes to geo, that there isn't an iceberg, that there is only a tasteful material design tip. Right? It's this beautiful little box that just you type magic into. Or like a map that just works, that all the stuff is, it's easy, it's simple. It's all the stuff we say software should be, that we talk about as being usable and good. Hiding the ugly. Yeah. Well, they're also hiding the iceberg. And that's not a criticism. They've done an incredible job of hiding the iceberg. But when it comes to geo, what you're talking about is an existing data set. And then you get into quality coverage licensing. Then you get into features and functionality around that. So search is the big one, geocoding, and then potentially reverse geocoding if you need to. We tell people in the world what geocoding is. Geocoding is typing in an address or a string or pizza and a zip code. Oh, okay. having the computer pizza one zero zero one zero. People do it. Okay. And then having the computer return a useful result. Okay, so it's like okay, this person wants pizza. That's a zip code. Let's give them the list of all the yeah. And what's, what is reverse geocoding? Reverse geocoding is taking a latitude and a longitude coordinate and telling somebody where it is. Okay. So if you're standing on the corner of... 26th and Broadway. Right. So are you in Gramercy? Are you in Flatiron? Are you in, what do they call it now, Nomad? Yeah. I mean, so but we're back to the bounding box. Yeah. Okay. So that's reverse geocoding. Okay. It's trying to figure out what somebody means. So there's all these things. There's all these things and services and data yeah. that is underneath something like Google Maps. Yeah. And then even beyond that, there's routing engines for doing directions. And then there are map tiles. And then there's producing the map tiles. And there's storing the map tiles. And there's delivering the map tiles. So it's this, it's actually a huge project. And so we're doing it I all. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people work on it, if I'm not mistaken. The story that I've heard, and I don't know if these are accurate numbers anymore, but um, Google has a thousand full-time people working on maps and about 6,000 contractors. Well, And, and 6,000 contractors? Yeah. Right, wow. but think about the drivers, too. I mean, it's for the, like the Google Maps cars and all that stuff. I mean, just to like... 7,000 just working on That's incredible. So we're doing the... We're building the entire iceberg as an open data, open source project. So in, if I wanted to like do something with Geo, but I don't want to use anything that like Google or anyone else has, I use Mapsin. You could use, we have um, pre-baked services, so okay. both for search and for routing, and we also host tiles. So you could so use- So tiles are, are pictures of the world. They're rectangles. They are rectangles. What the great revolution or the great insight that Google had in 2005, and it's to the consternation of geographers everywhere, was they said, what if we just didn't worry about the poles? Oh. They're just like, whatever. And what if we could- Antarctica? Pretty much. To hell with penguins? And they were like, what if we could just turn the world into a square? So if you zoom out and you can take the entire world and put it in a single square and lop off- 
the top and the bottom, then it makes doing the math really, really easy to subdivide that. Uh, so just screw McMurdo Station and just go for it. Pretty much. Okay. And so what- kind of okay with that. I mean, you know, I, people pay way too much attention to Antarctica for what it actually does. It's just a different way of doing things. Well, I mean, you know, no, screw Antarctica. That's where we got to get with this. Um, so basically what you can do at that point is you can represent the world as little 256 pixel square tiles. Okay. Um, and so zoom level one is a single tile. Zoom level two is four tiles and it just goes on. So a given digital map is made up of all this different kind of data, all these different kinds of services, and literally millions and millions of things like tiles, like all these little bits of data that then get put together for the user. Tiles have become a very, very efficient way to transfer lots of data about a place over the web. So yeah. And allowing zooming. So there's different levels of access. Correct. Okay. And different amounts of data at different zoom levels. Okay. Uh, and so originally, when Google started, they would send down... 256 pixel PNG files. Okay. And now what people are doing is they're actually encoding data in those tiles. So if you actually looked at a tile, you wouldn't see a picture, you would see a blob of JSON. And there are client-side libraries that will do all of the rendering. And what that means is that you can start to take advantage of all the technologies that are in the browser for doing dynamic styling, swooshy swooshy stuff. So this stuff goes... It's also that sort of quasi-3D effect is... Yeah. As you're sort of panning, you can see the buildings, the sides of the buildings and all that. Yeah, because as GL becomes baked into the web browsers yeah. and as you have the information about elevation and yeah. size, then you can do 3D modeling yeah. on the fly. I mean, obviously Google's achieved a lot here. How far along is Maps End? Like Side-by-side -side comparison, Maps End, uh, Google Maps. Google has been at geocoding for 10 years and it's a hard problem. I mean, it's basically trying to read people's minds. And they have uh, 7,000 people. And they have 7,000 people, but uh, we have an open source geocoder that just keeps getting better. How many people is Mapsend? We are about 50 all in all right now. All right. So it sounds like you, you, you'd probably need to hire a few people to compete. That's always the great question. Uh, it's 2016. It's kind of remarkable what you can get done with a small team sure. versus being realistic about expectations for people's work-life balance yeah. and burning out. Let's um, say I had an idea to start a new startup where you can ask for a car to pick you up and take you to another location and I need mapping technology. Can I use MapSend? Yes. And it would work reliably? Uh, most places, most of the time. That's great. I mean, that's a lot. That's directions. That's... I mean, part of the issue is this has always been the problem with Geo is it's quality coverage and then licensing. Yeah. You know, our goal is to do that for the entire planet. Have we done it yet? Not quite, right. um, but we're getting there. And but that's we, the goal. That's the goal, and we do a lot of work. We use OpenStreetMap for both the map tiles and the routing directions, and so that's a data set that just keeps getting better every and that, day. That's sort of like the Wikipedia of streets. I mean, it, it, everyone contributes. Yep. And... Another app I want to create that lets you find restaurants, Maps in. Can I do it? That's one of the things we're working on. Okay. Uh, the short answer is today, hmm, Maybe. Depends yeah. on where you are. Yeah. Um, the longer answer is if we do our job right, absolutely. Well, where would that data come from anyway? Where are you getting like businesses and... So this is the thing about venue data is there is no open venue data. Sure. Um, and what I mean by that is OpenStreetMap does have a lot of open venue data, but OpenStreetMap has essentially a viral license that says if you use our stuff to make something else, you have to license it 
under the same terms as OpenStreetMap, mm. which is OpenStreetMap's prerogative, but it's not necessarily what we want to do. We would much rather have a license where we're like, we are doing this as an open data source because it's the right thing to do. And if you need to make a commercial product, that's your business. So you can't like go to the IRS and say, give me a list of all the, all the businesses? You can do it. Uh, you can do that. They may not open the door. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, it, again, it depends on what your target is. If you're just talking about the United States, then there are lots of data sources that you can pull from okay. that you can do it over time and harvesting. Um, and we're definitely looking at some of that. But you asked about a gazetteer. I mean, the project that I'm working on immediately at MapZen is an open gazetteer. And so I'm... So a list of every place in the world. Yeah. Okay. How big um, is it? How many places? How big is the world? Well, we have a fraction of it right now. There are ballpark 3 million postal codes, probably four when we factor in the things we don't have, probably two, two and a half million administrative places. So cities, neighborhoods, regions, and then venues, it will only ever get bigger. We have been importing an old open data set from 2010 that a company called Simple Geo released, which is business listings. And so right now, that's 20 million venues. A lot of hair salons, a lot of like A lot of hair salons, McDonald's. a lot of plumbers. So yeah, we probably don't have the hipster bar that opened up last week. But okay. on the other hand, if you need a plumber in Kansas or Missouri or rural California, we probably have it. Okay. Have you thought about the sort of getting an engine going that seems to power a Wikipedia? Meaning there's sort of this motivation out there to put the right information in the right place. It's tricky, right? Because OpenStreetMap has a lot of that, but it's just not I don't know, open. but does it have the tooling like to say, hey, because if I'm opening a, a little cafe somewhere, I'm pretty motivated to put it in somewhere, but I, I don't know of that text box anywhere. We haven't done that yet. Yeah. It's it's a thing we talk about. Yeah. And Do you imagine the motivation is there? Is that, I think it would be yes. there. I mean... Oh, people will list their commercial businesses. businesses want to be everywhere. So yeah. why the heck not? Yeah, what we don't have in place right now, and this is a really important thing. I mean, this is what you know. This is what Heather sort of pioneered at, at Flickr was. We don't have a community management support infrastructure for that volume of yeah. user contributed data. Yeah, and sure. people are going to argue about stuff. Yeah, um, and so right now we're working on the scaffolding to just yeah. manage something that oh, so you're gathering all this data together for the gazetteer and programming and doing some work to like get that data into a good place yep but you're assuming that eventually human beings are going to show up and have opinions about the data that you've gathered yes so the gazetteer is called who's on first okay um we said two things one is that it is not a gazetteer of geometries or geographies per se it is a gazetteer of consensual hallucinations so we may <laughs> sure. disagree about where the flat iron starts and stops, but we all know it's there. Yeah, no, that's true. Everyone would say there is a neighborhood called Flatiron in Manhattan. And so the other thing we want to do is that it is a gazetteer of signal fires. So as much as possible, we are trying to separate interpretation about the facts from the facts themselves, where who's on first doesn't try to solve the debate, but it would like to just be a place where the debate can be managed and reflected and leaving mm -hmm. decisions and interpretation about that to actual consumers of the data. What do users of GeoTools fight about the most? Uh, spherical Mercator and Google's decision to turn the world into a square. Really? And the, whether it's lat long or Somebody's lat long. Somebody's cried about that. 
There it's, are tears that have been shed over the square. What do, what do you think the users are going to do when this data is in front of them? Immediately, not much. But you're not meant to have a gazetteer experience. You're not meant to yeah, wake up in the morning be. and, you know what I want to do? I want to I who's on first as a verb. Well, you're looking at me saying that. I mean, I really do. I'm like, <laughs> give me all the places. That sounds really fun. Okay, but you're right. Your average, your civilian. It's going to slip into their workflow. Yeah. Well, the, the way to answer that question is to say that nobody understands why a gazetteer is important until they suddenly need one. And then they're like, wait, oh, what? How do we? And then, no, that's that's been the miracle of the web to me, right? Is that you would... You'd be like, oh, I want to build this thing. And then you, it, you very rapidly stumble into the need for a large set of data with a lot of tasks. Like I need historical texts or I need a list of places or whatever. It's, it's just amazing how often you get back to that. And that whole part of our world is surprisingly untended, right? Like you go and you're like, oh, I'll get this list of businesses, but it's from 2010. Mm -hmm. And no one has adopted it since. I've actually been thinking, like, if there isn't really, as far as I can tell, maybe you'd know better than I would, but there's an idea of, like, I'm going to adopt this open source project, or I'm going to give this into the commons, or I'm going to open this thing, but there's no culture of adopting big data sets and, and taking care of them in the same way that there is, like, putting stuff on GitHub and, and doing releases of open source software that I know about. I'd jump in on that. I mean, Wikipedia is a big data set, yeah. but the geologist really cares about that rock article. They right? do, but what I'm talking about is like the 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 open list of fossil sites is like one, always one person, right? That's what that's good. It is, but then there's kind of no culture where you go like, "Hey, I don't want to maintain this list anymore." That's it. Like a big data set goes out in 2010 and then it doesn't get updated again. Yeah, and, and nobody, there's no real culture where somebody goes in and is like, I'm going to take this over. Right. There's no like heroic narrative where you're like, we're going to do no. it. Well, I think uh, it's sad. I guess the, the example of people who are doing that are the New York Public Library. They are. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That's a good example of trying to deal with both just processing the data in whether it's the menus project or the theater bills or the building inspector. And their labs is very strong. Yeah. That's yeah. Very and true. then providing tools for letting people work in little atomic units. Right. Um, but even then, I mean, some of it's a question of scale. I mean, for all that the NYPL does amazing work, they're pretty reluctant to offer those services outside of New York City. No, of course. I, you know, it's just, uh, what's bugging me is that I think that everyone sees code as the infrastructure for creativity and doing new work online. And I think it's also data. And, and we don't really, that's not a conversation that people have that much. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I would say to friends who worked in the news industry, you know, five, six years ago when the, the zeitgeist was the death of all news publications. Well, there was a news industry back then. Right. But, you know, the thing about if you talk to people in the newspaper industry, you're like, sure, maybe the economics of ink on paper aren't what they used to be. But I don't think news is going away. And by the way, you're sitting on some of you, like the New York Times or The Guardian, you're sitting on 200 years of history with sure. people who know how to find stuff in there and understand the, the connections and the relationship. Maybe that's your business. <laughs> no, but they see the articles as the thing rather than the network that's inside of there. Well, then, yeah, I mean, the market forces of distribution and publication will probably catch up with them. Can someone acquire Maps in? I guess anything can happen. Anything can happen. Right. Well, right now it's funded by Samsung, right? We are part of uh, Samsung Research America, yes. 
which I you don't have to talk about this. I just see that as Samsung going like, okay, there's Apple. Just in case. There's Google. <laughs> Do we have a global mapping solution? And somebody's like, oh, God, no, we got to get one of those. They just bought Joyent so they could have a cloud. I think it's part of a larger project just to make sure that we have the things that we need in-house. I mean, you know, as a company, we make all the things. We make cargo ships. Right. Which is oh, they have a Samsung has a, a amusement park with skiing. Like, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, just in case. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I, it honestly like bless them for doing it this way, which is like here, dump it all back into the commons in a nice structured format. That like the motive, park the motive for a second. There's a this is a really cool open project for now. Um, it happens to be funded not by government money but private money. Um, so who knows how the movie ends, right? Do you think that's a good thing, though? Do you think that the corporate benefactor is a good kind of benefactor? Um, yes. Or rather, I'd like to live in a world where people can say that without, I think you, you know, with a straight face. I mean, I, I think that we're better off if that's possible. No, I mean, I've been looking at MapSend on and off for a while, and like, it's exactly what you would want a global open mapping project to be like if its goal is to be of utility to as many people as possible in the future. Yeah. I mean, Regardless of who they are. Like, come in and get this data. Come in and use these services. One of the things that we talk a lot about is we're not the first company to try to do open geo. Other companies have tried, and they failed for whatever reason. And unfortunately, the response has usually been, you know, I would look at you, Paul, and be like, oh, okay, so this open geo company's gone away. Do I have the Google API key or do you? That's right. So you guys are, you have adopted geo. Like you've adopted this world. I mean, the goal is to succeed. The goal is to do all the things. Right. Um, and hopefully we will and maybe we won't. And if we don't, then the goal is for it not to be a complete reset to zero, that there will be something that someone else can pick up and run with without having to start all over again. So let's let's talk about that. That's a that's actually a great way to conclude this. How are you preparing your gazetteer, which isn't yours, it will belong to the world. Mm-hmm. How are you preparing that for the future where you may not be around, MapSend may not be around, the United States of America may have become something very different. There's going to be this thing, this data thing that you made. Yes. And you want other people to use and add and do things with it. Yeah. I mean, to start with, one of the early decisions we made was that we wanted a gazetteer that was portable and robust and durable across time. How do so you do beyond, that? Uh, you print, it, print it on brass? <laughs> we joked about that. Okay. In the interim, it's text files. It's a gigantic bag of text files because it turns out- God, those are the best. They're the best. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of other super efficient, very clever data formats, but they often require a whole bag of Google on your computer or another company. You know, they're proprietary binary formats that are optimized yeah. for something. There are two good ways to store data, text files and SQLite. I'm just saying that. I want, I want, I want now to that's put... a way to close a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so flat text files yep. that I can just go get a text file. It's on GitHub. It is all on GitHub. So you have built this thing to be shared, added to, and used. It's in Git, and there's a whole set of cultural understandings about collaborating, working together in Git, and taking things away, adding to them, bringing them back in. Yeah, that things are in Git and GitHub is is more a reflection of the kinds of features and functionality that we want 
that Git provides right now or does the best approximation of providing. It has some problems. Git doesn't really do well with a million tiny files. Um, and there's millions of tiny places. There are lots of places in the world. Yep. But we point to Git as a way to say, this is how it should be. And we're going to sort of use the bubblegum and duct tape of this service. And either the technology will catch up and Git will make advances and suddenly it will all be fast and smooth and easy. Or we will figure out... Figure um, something out. Figure something out. All right. So how long are you going to be working on this gazetteer? As long as it takes. You're in. You're down to work on this gazetteer for a while. You know, the gazetteer was the bane of my existence at Flickr. I mean... I knew the people who were working on it, and they were good people, but it was always an issue, and I don't want to ever have to do this again. So a decade in, you are solving a cultural and personal problem. Uh, it turns out, you know, things have a way of coming back. I don't think that it should take a decade to finish who's on first. Okay. I think that there's a lot of grunt work to do right now, and just for practical purposes, it should be able to get to a point where it's mostly you know, doorknob polishing and incremental updates because the world keeps changing. Right. But it needs to be a thing that can, we can just do the first version and put it down and live with it for a while and get on with other things. So right now you have to catch up with the world and then you can sort of chill out a little bit. Yeah, we might deal with historical places after that. Oh, that'd be fun. Like Carthage. Uh, yeah, or the example that that I always use is there's a project that came out of George Mason, George Washington, one of the universities on the East Coast called Manifest Destiny, which was a snapshot of the United States at every moment that a state or a, a new bit of land joined the Union. And so that means between Fun. the years 1759 and 1879 or something like that, the U.S. changed 141 times. And we will have who's on first records for each one of them. And it will just be a big linked list pointing to the thing that came after it. It's a worthy goal. So... If I want to get in touch with you, what do I do? Uh, hello at mapsend.com. Oh, that sounds pretty nice. And if I want to go look at your gazetteer, what do I do? Who's on first.mapsend.com. And all of the links are there. And if I want to learn anything else about Aaron's Drop Cope in general, where should I head? I guess you could say nowhere. That's fine. No, I guess the weblog. So that would be aaronland.info slash weblog. It's a classic, classic site. <laughs> Aaron Strapkope, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Well, Ricciate. I feel like I know my place in the world now. I do too. I love the work that MapSim's doing. Yeah. I really do. I think this is exciting stuff. There's something about data that you can use and that has real caretakers keeping an eye on it that's so foundational to the internet. And I'm glad we got to talk about it a little bit today. Mm -hmm. So um, if anyone wants to get in touch with us here at Track Changes, the official email is contact at postlight.com. Send it us an email. Is. We right. love email. Uh, we love hearing from our listeners, and we will be back really soon. Rich, have a lovely week. Thank you, Aaron, again. Thank you. Fun. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.